0: If you had to choose just one song to define your favorite artist, what would it be? I'm Cole Kushner from Dissect. And I'm Charles Holmes from the Midnight Boys. Together, we're the hosts of Last Song Standing, a show where we determine an artist's single greatest song by debating our
1: way through their entire catalog. Our first season covered Kendrick Lamar, and now we're back to debate one of the most gifted, mysterious musicians of our time, Frank Ocean. Listen to Last Song Standing on the Dissect podcast feed starting Tuesday, August 1st, only on Spotify.
0: A trial by content it's the podcast where we force our favorite pop culture to compete in the coliseum of contentious opinion so we can all decide what wins each week your three humble hosts will debate a pop culture topic set the specific rules and rumble until a consensus is reached then with input from you the listener base we'll smash together our nominations with yours and determine a final four nominee poll that will enter trial by content and decide the winner for all time Hello again, I'm Dave Gonzalez.
2: Why, hello, I'm Joanna Robinson.
0: And I remain Neil Miller. This week, some characters become so beloved in the sphere of animation that the audience needs, nay demands, to see that character (laughs) in live action. We are going to evaluate which live action on-screen appearance where the character has sprung out of animation succeeded to the greatest degree as we debate what is the best animated character turned live action. But first, I'm happy to report that this week, democracy worked with the results of last week's worst movie (laughs) to make a billion poll. Uh, If you recall, we had four movies that have grossed a billion dollars worldwide at the box office. We were trying to figure out which one was the worst. Uh, Coming in fourth place, which actually means... In this poll, it's the best of our bad billion-dollar movies is The Hobbit and Unexpected (laughs) Journey, which got 6.7% of the vote. Peter Jackson, you made it. (laughs) It's
2: the only time A Hobbit and Unexpected Journey has ever won something, been the best at something, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) The best bad billionaire, billion dollar movie. <laughs> Love it.
0: Yeah, much like A Hobbit. Uh, it went by unnoticed while a fight raged around it. Uh, <laughs> used a barrel, snuck right out of there. Uh, in third place, controversially, is Avatar. James Cameron's Avatar with 11%. Joanna, this was your choice. How was your week
2: online? <laughs> very, very special. <laughs> <laughs> people really love avatar and also james cameron and i knew that i I like last week was a turning a release valve for me and then i'll just go back to not talking about avatar until the end of time just needed to get it out if you love avatar and you love james cameron and you were offended by my rant i think you can sell yourself in the fact that you've got a million more avatar movies coming and they all make a gajillion dollars so don't worry you're writing on, you're on top of the world you won yeah. you're king of the world <laughs> So don't Take worry w. about it, James Cameron.
0: <laughs> and Joanna didn't hurt you that bad because you're listening to this <laughs> podcast right now, the week after. Uh, in second place with 35.7% of the votes is Alex in Wonderland, the Tim Burton 3D monstrosity that, as Neil pointed out last week, doomed us to this Disney strategy of, eh, just remake it. It'll make a billion dollars. Uh... Does it doesn't always work. Uh, definitely does not give us better movies. And then at the top, the franchise ruining, the IP destroyer, the swarm of prehistoric locusts. It's Jurassic World Dominion with 46.5% of the vote. I am so glad that you guys all saw eye to eye with me. I'm sad that uh, this probably means a lot of you have watched it. Uh, But I'm also encouraged that maybe I just described it accurately enough to win your vote across three different platforms. So the worst movie to ever make a billion dollars at the box office is Jurassic World Dominion. Uh, Settled, let's move on. If you want to see the movies that we mention on any week's podcast, uh, whether it's bad billion-dollar movies or animated uh, characters that have had live-action film adaptations, you go to letterbox.com. Slash trial by content there you will see a curated list of movies mentioned on the podcast even if they didn't make it into the poll. And before we finally get into that debate about animated characters, we have to remind you about what's happening next week. Open up your email machine uh, <laughs> write in trial by content at gmail.com because we want your opinion on strike movies. It's the best movie about the labor movement. maybe it has a strike in it. Maybe it's about a certain conflict that happened with labor. We are in the midst of a Hollywood strike that is really screwing up uh, the next year's worth of releases. And it looks like, from recent Who's screwing
2: reports up? Who's screwing up the next year of releases? Uh, the oh, the studios AM, who don't want to pay their writers. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> <And> <laughs> actors. Yeah correct
0: yes it appears uh with the news this week coming out of the new renewed ego- negotiations uh, that uh, the studios have not learned their lesson yet so it's going to keep going on for a little bit longer uh we want to celebrate the time that entertainment got these sorts of conflicts right strike movies write in the best movie about the labor movement make your case in an email to us at trialbycontent@gmail.com. at gmail.com all right Speaking of uh, debates that we have on this uh, weekly podcast about debates, Joanna, what are we talking about this week?
2: I really love that my section is highlighted. I think I did that to help myself, but it just <laughs> makes me feel like an undisciplined child who needs to be like, hey, Joanna, stay focused. Anyway, we've been, the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about the fact that Dave and I have a book coming out, MC Rain of Marvel Studios. This is not the same old plug even hearing though i just wanted to announce we had a lot of people ask if there was going to be an audiobook we said there was but we didn't have a link to it or you know any but it is up now available for pre-order so you can pre-order the audiobook of mcu the reign of marvel studios it is narrated by andrew Kashino who is the uh voice of animated saw so kind of on on Topic here. He's also, she's shown up in a bunch of animated Marvel properties. You know, his, his he's got a long voice work CV. Um, he's great. We heard a bunch of people we really liked Andrew's work, so we went with Andrew, plus we thought it was cool that he was Sa Guerrera. Um, I'm reading the prologue of the book. Um, but also if you look for this, I believe the author of the book is listed as Dave Gonzalez for the audiobook. So if you're if you're <laughs> trying to find who <laughs> wrote the book, it's Dave Gonzalez. Um and thank you to everyone who suggested that we Narrate the audiobook ourselves. I absolutely did not want to do that. I don't know how Dave feels about it, but I am delighted that someone else is doing it. So. I, I
0: need at least two months before I read that book again, I'm yeah, afraid.
2: Exactly. We were, we were, <laughs> we were not clamoring. We were asked, we were not clamoring to do that. This is the solution. Um, and and we're really excited about it. So if you prefer to listen to your books, that is a way you can absorb this information. The goal and the rules of this trial today. <laughs> Is we're going to talk about anime characters who've been turned into live action. Um, It is inspired by the debut of Ahsoka on Disney Plus, the first two episodes of which dropped at a reasonable hour on Tuesday night on Disney Plus. So we're going to talk about Ahsoka for a little bit before we get into the debate and just sort of our overall impressions. Um, I'll be doing a deep dive with Mallory on House of R, so we're not going to go like deep, deep, deep into it. But I'm really excited to talk to Dave and Neil about how they feel about it, talk to them about Star Wars in general. So let's just start with um, overall impressions. I'm going to start with Dave, but I'm very curious to hear Neil's take as well. I think I've talked to Dave about it a little bit more. Dave, Ahsoka. Yeah, Yeah, so I did the uh,
0: end of Saving Private Ryan, a rapid aging gif in my mind, realizing that I was like living in New York, being a Star Wars fan, when Star Wars, The Clone Wars, the animated movie that served as the pilot, came out, and I was like, who the hell is... Anakin Skywalker did not have a Padawan, and that was my introduction to little Ahsoka Tano, who I have been uh, privileged to see grow into her own... Uh, Jedi Masterness, or not Jedi Masterness specifically, uh, over the years. And uh, she slowly became such an important part of the Star Wars universe that when I finally see uh, a title with her name on it after a scroll o- over a star field, I'm like, you know what? Somehow... Ahsoka feels like the most George Lucas shit we've gotten from Star Wars uh, since George Lucas owned Star Wars. It is not something that feels necessarily like rapid universe expansion, even though it is because Dave Filoni is building this tapestry that's going to eventually culminate in a movie, we assume. Uh, but it does feel like because of all these things that were seeded, Outside of the movies, by the time they're thrown together with a more traditional Star Wars hero's journey, Master and Apprentice wise, uh, that there's also a whole bunch of weird stuff at the edges that can be incorporated, that feels like uh, things were incorporated in the original trilogy, where they're there. Uh, they're at the periphery, and if you want to flush them out, you can head right to the expanded universe like we used to uh, back before the prequel series, except this time you will find a whole bunch of canon stuff uh, to fill in your gaps if you need to know who these people in Ahsoka are. So my my initial reactions last night uh, with the score and the crawl and the uh, titles about witches is that uh, Star Wars is back, baby. Star Wars is back.
2: Maybe um, that's largely how I feel. But Neil Miller with, with the descent. Hit me with your feelings.
1: <laughs> well, okay. So I will admit that I, I was fairly skeptical entering the world of Ahsoka. Mostly because I've never seen Rebels and, uh, in its entirety, nor have I seen The Clone Wars. So I don't really have an attachment to this character as folks like Dave, who were there at the beginning, might but I will say, by the end of the second episode, I was won over by this show, and sort of just being back in the world, I thought a lot of the exterior space stuff still looks great. Like ILM operating at a very high level, it feels a lot bigger than the Obi Wan show, which is good because there's something very small th- about that show that I didn't like. Uh, and then, of course, you know, in a very George Lucasy fashion, they introduce a, a fun round map-based MacGuffin and a great star map. And apparently we're going there's some other galaxy out there where we gotta go find a legendary baddie. And I'm like, all right, Star Wars, I'll do this with you. Uh I'll I'll go along with these characters. So I'm looking forward, I guess, to learning more about Ahsoka and what her whole deal is and why it's so important that we have a whole show built around her. Um but yeah, I'm I'm feeling more like mando season one vibes especially from the score i love the addition of like the drums early on uh and then like i said visually it feels like it has some scale to it so it's off to a pretty good start um but i remain i remain skeptical about this this show specifically because there's so much uh story from backstory basically in the animated versions uh getting a little fan service or getting getting a little too into the weeds of things that I should have to do homework to know what they are right, right? like right, I shouldn't right. have to go and watch rebels yeah. so I don't feel lost yet which I think is a, a points for the show and uh I feel mostly invested in the characters and yeah so I would say it's off it's off to a much stronger start than I expected given the sort of up and downness of some of the Star Wars shows lately
2: I think you're, I love, I love healthy skepticism. So I think it's, it's, you know, good to maintain that. Um, And of course, like a lot of conversation I've seen has been in the anxiety leading up to it and in the reaction of the first two episodes is like, how much can you understand the show if you have not watched all of Clone Wars and all of Rebels, like Dave and I have. And I, um, I mean, first of all, you can listen to our prep pods over on the house of our feed if you want to get like a little, uh, refresher or primer, but you don't ha- have to, you shouldn't have to do any homework to Neil's point. And I completely, I've always, we've always said that we say that about Game of Thrones, like reading the books should enhance your enjoyment of Game of Thrones, but your understand your comprehension of it should not be dependent on you having read the books or something like that needs the thing needs to stand on its own. What I did appreciate about Ahsoka. As I, I feel like it's very, like, it's very, the there are no member berries, I feel like, about Ahsoka. There are characters and moments that show up that if you're a Rebels fan, you might be doing, like, the Leo pointing at the screen meme when, like, Clancy Brown, who was the voice actor who played the character Ryder Azadi in Rebels, shows up to play him in live action. Like, that's fun for us. But if you don't know that, then you're just like, here's... Hey, it's Clancy I'm, Brown. Like, beloved character actor, <laughs> Clancy Brown, playing some sort of authority figure. And that's all you need to know, like, really, honestly. And so I just feel like those moments, you know, or Jai Kel is the center now, or like, whatever it is, like, I, I feel like those moments, or there is a sequence that is the, uh, fairly close, though there are some key differences, reenactment of the final sequence of the final episode of Rebels that's in the middle, like, three quarters of the way through Episode two. And that was one of my favorite tests of like, are they going to be hitting the nostalgia beats hard because they have this moment. Sabine is looking at the mural. Ahsoka is there to pick her up. They're off to find Ezra Bridger. Um, and I think if it were the kind of show that was like Remember, that would have been the closing shot of the episode, but it wasn't. It's just a thing that happens and then the episode continues. And the other thing that I love about Ahsoka, that I think is really smart about Ahsoka on on this level, is that I don't think the biggest mystery is where is Ezra Bridger or where is Grand Admiral Thrawn. I think the biggest mystery is what the fuck happened between Ahsoka and Sabine. And what I think is really great is that Dave and I don't know the animated fans don't know either because there's been a time jump where as much in the dark as new watchers are. So the fact that there's like this mystery at the center that we don't know the answer to. So we're all sort of asking this question and it's a relationship based mystery. What's the greatest answer to a mystery? It's a person. Like, I think that that makes me really excited. So I hope that people stick with Ahsoka. I hope they don't feel alienated by it. I understand if people do feel alienated, like they have not been given all the information, but I do think that Dave Filoni, who like loves Ahsoka Tano, this character with all of his heart, it's his like fondest creation. Um, I think he's been really, he's really been very careful about trying to welcome everyone in. But a lot of this depends, even if you've spent years and years and years with animated Ahsoka Tano, there is a difference between the way that Ashley Eckstein, who voiced Ahsoka Tano in animation, play that character versus Rosario Dawson playing her in live action. We've now seen her in four episodes total in live action across three different shows. Um, Dave, what do you think of Rosario's performance? Is it different in a way that you find interesting or is it does it feel foreign to you? How do you feel about it?
0: Uh, I feel like this is always what... Fans in Star Wars like would want in like a origin story, like a simple Star Wars story where we're chasing the thing and there are good guys and bad guys. But like in the original, like A New Hope Star Wars movie, like Ben Kenobi, awesome badass Jedi, we get to see him have one okay fight with Darth Vader, then he dies, and it's like okay. And then, of course, in the uh, sequel trilogy, uh, there is, uh, by the time we get to Luke Skywalker, he doesn't even want to be a part of that anymore. So it's not like he's necessarily part of uh, Rey's actual journey. A lot of this has been contained in the prequel series, and I feel like a lot of the prequel series, especially uh, the Clone Wars animated series, was like, we're going to give you the fun combat things you've been doing with your action figures, but. Because of the specific time period in the story world, we get to go like super hard, like battle droids are not humans, you could cut them apart. Uh, Lasers are not bullets, you could have those being fired at Jedi and children Jedi and things like that. So we kind of upped the action of the series, but now we're back where these sorts of powers uh, are much more uh, reserved, and the people who have used them, at least uh, at this time in Star Wars, have had some sort of ancillary Jedi training. So I really like Ahsoka as uh, somebody who's close to the Jedi Master um, piece, the the wise old wizard, uh, but can still... Take down, you know, like five HK droids pretty pretty easily by herself. Uh, so she's not, she's she's a, an expert at battle. She's fought in the Clone Wars, but she's also more towards the quiet, thoughtful Jedi side of her, uh, just having been fighting uh, for ages. Uh, so I I like it. The thing that I like the least about Ahsoka was her bratty period. Uh, where she had to be sort of kicked in the oh, line Snips. by Anakin Skywalker. Yeah, I didn't I didn't like the Snips period so much. So the fact that she's finally here, but I also have the knowledge of her growing into it, uh, makes it, I think, a much better portrayal than I was expecting. And I think a slightly more complex one now that she's with people that know her uh, than the one that we got in both The Mandalorian and The Book of Boba
2: Fett. Neil Miller. Rosario Dawson, how's it going?
1: I mean, I like Rosario Dawson as a general rule. Um, I do think that it's kind of tough for someone who has no greater context of, of Ahsoka's character to pin down exactly what's what her deal is so far. She's a little arrogant, but I get that she's a little bit of an older Jedi. And uh, from a performance standpoint, there is a certain element, especially in these first two episodes, where Rosario Dawson appears seems to be doing less acting and more like posing as Ahsoka, like getting into the right point in the shot. I like to call it the Dwayne The Rock Johnson School of Modern Acting within digital environments, where it's like you're not hitting your mark, you're hitting a specific pose to make you look, you know, just right in the frame, which I don't have a problem with it. I, I was surprised a little bit with uh how patient this show feels. And I think the acting sort of fits in with that. But uh yeah, I mean when it comes to the action, she's she's good fun. Uh, with those double lightsabers. And I'm, I think the show so far has spent more time investing in introducing me to sort of the rest of the characters in the world. And I kind of appreciate that. So I don't, I, w- I want to get into to Ahsoka's character by episode eight. Trust me, I do. But um, I think it's, I think it's okay that we're, that she's just sort of hanging out in the back, giving everybody eyes, uh, you know, in most of these scenes.
2: Yeah, the pacing was the one thing that I worried about a little bit. This is, uh, you know, sp- splintering off from what you said. Like when I wa- when you watch Steve Filoni's Mandalorian episode where Ahsoka Tano was introduced, the Jedi, it is a very slow, extra influenced by samurai films kind of episode. Um, and uh, you feel I like I like the use of the word patient. I think that's really smart. Neil. Like You feel that sort of here we are. We're just going to take it. One step at a time through this, and you're gonna watch Rosario Dawson twist those stone pillars into the proper place for a minute or five. <laughs> right. Um, so and I didn't mind because I was just like excited, but I it was it, that was the one thing that I was like, will people have the patience to keep up with this? But then, speaking of other characters, Sabine Wren shows up. Sabine Wren, who is the co-lead of the show, it seems, um, based on, you know what we've seen so far. Um, And Sabine Wren is a character that we've seen for years on Rebels in animation. Um, I loved this rendition of Sabine Wren. Uh, Natasha Liu Bordizo is playing her. Um, Sabine Wren is actually a character I was never deeply interested in in Rebels. And so I was just completely captivated by this brash young woman fucking with the space cops getting that sort of like Ray scavenger, lonely girl introduction. She's got this relationship with her loath cat. Like I just, she looks great. Sounds great. Big, big Sabine live action fan. Dave, how did you feel?
0: I laughed at her introduction uh, because this is what I'm talking about. Like George Lucas was making car movies and then pivoted to Star Wars. You know who loves a, motorcycle outruns the space cop sequence, fucking George Lucas must have been like, yes, yes, I didn't get to show him bullseyeing wop rats, but that's because the technology didn't exist. This is your Star Wars hero. Uh, I I like Sabine being kicked in a Luke direction. And when Luke does it, it's whiny, but because I know what Sabine's been through, like a former leader of Mandalore right there, um, uh, I, I'm i much more open to her, you know, being the emotional core uh, apprentice that needs to get um, educated in the ways of uh, fighting in the Jedi way. I'm a little unclear, uh, especially with a conversation uh, later on, how strong and, like, the Force Force Sabine is. And uh, if that's going... If what we're seeing here is actually something more like uh, The Last Jedi, where it's not so much about... Uh, you being born with superpowers. It's about you being able to tap into the living force. Uh, So I'm interested to see where that goes. Uh, But I do also kind of feel like... I I agree that Sabine wasn't my favorite character from Rebels, but also I feel like they've divorced her from her Rebels arc uh, entirely. Just how long they wait to pull out the Mandalorian helmet... Knowing that like a more modern Star Wars fan would actually identify with something with that helmet more than with Sabine, uh, shows me that we're in we're in a different, as you were saying, we don't know what really happened between Sabine and Ahsoka. So this story has to do with that backstory, not necessarily the rebel's backstory. Sabine, I think, has been soft reset, uh, but in a way that I think honors sort of what came before. And also honors the basic story of Star Wars, where you know, a little farm boy or a, a scavenger from a desert planet has to be uh, introduced to this larger world of crazy space stuff.
2: Um, Neil, I want to ask you about Sabine, but I also at the same time want to ask you about Harris and Dula because I know how you feel about Mary Elizabeth Winstead. So hit me with your double Harris <laughs> and Sabine feelings. I mean,
1: I agree with you that the introduction of Sabine is great, the chase scene, her whole. You know her little hideout is fantastic, and I do. Th- I think she works really well against the more stoic version of Ahsoka that we're getting, and I think that that's a relationship I'm I'm interested in watching. Uh, Hera is great. We love seeing Mary Elizabeth Winstead show up in uh, really anything, and I don't know much about the character, but I do know. Listen, I know people were excited about this droid named Chopper.
2: Yeah,
1: <laughs> here is a great example in the second episode of taking a character that's full of hype from people who who know the backstory and in like a minute's worth of screen time giving me everything I need to know about this character right like it's like uh Hera takes off chasing after this ship and choppers on uh, looking for a tracking device <laughs> and there's just so much <laughs> comedy from a droid that has arms and i'm I'm completely in love with it I hope we get Ah, uh, plenty more of them. I mean, I think Mary Elizabeth Winstead is doing great. I also think this is a good spot to shout out. Uh, some of the makeup effects in this show are really solid. It's you know, Star Wars has been is populated by many different varieties, species of characters, but it's rare to have a show where multiple main characters are aliens or non humans. Uh, and I think that's that's kind of fun. I hope that the show. Is interested in giving me more about like what does it mean to be a Twilek New Republic general? Um, so we'll see. But I, I'm I'm excited about them, um, and of course Chopper. And I also wanted to shout out uh, the the new baddies because oh yeah, I will say that even if I wasn't already sort of hot committed to Star Wars things, the inclusion of the late great Ray Stevenson would be enough to get me to watch Ahsoka because, you know, that's my Blackbeard, That's my RRR villain. That's my punisher. Uh, You know, so, and I think he's really, really interesting. Like, I'm getting some sort of disaffected Qui-Gon Jinn vibes from, from this guy, Balin Skull. Like, he's sort of connected. If he feels like he's sort of connected to the force in a slightly different way, like a deep way, but maybe isn't totally evil. And it's just sort of surviving by trying to amass a little bit more power, but we'll see. Um, I'm looking forward to the, uh, exploring the nuance of that, but yeah, I'm into it overall.
2: The, that's the next thing I, I definitely want to talk about. I'm so glad you, you took us there because I think, so, you know, I, I I know I said it can stand on its own but I am now going to give you a little animated backstory on Ahsoka Tano to say she walked away from the Jedi order and like very famously in rebels said I am no Jedi and like full Aoen I am no man kind of mode in a in a duel uh showdown with uh, good old Darth Vader. Um and so I think this possibility you'll notice that her lightsabers are white that is a very Unusual color for a lightsaber. Um, Balin and Shin have orangish sabers, which is a very unusual color for a lightsaber. And so the possibility here is that we are going to get a less binary exploration of the Force. It's not about dark side and light side. Ahsoka is a lightsider. She's not like gray morally, but like what are new facets of the Force that we can explore? Rebels was actually quite good at this in Clone Wars 2 a little bit of like deepening our lore beyond the basic light side, dark side, and not in a funky, we don't like it, we don't say the word anymore, midichlorian kind of way. And um, (laughs) in a more (laughs) mystical kind of way, like introduction of more mysticism. And there's a lot of mysticism running through these first two episodes that made me really excited for where we could go. Dave, do you have any thoughts or feelings about Complicating the force or people's relationships. What up, to the night force.
0: sisters? Good to see you. <laughs> it has yeah. been a long road from animation through video games, and here we are. Force witches who they don't care about your your orders. Like they're an entire race of witch force users that get to use green force, which is something we don't see uh, the Jedi use. Yeah, I am uh, psyched to see that. I am uh, definitely interested in uh, whether you call them like gray Jedi or, uh, you know, dark Jedi, uh, whatever our new orange saber people are going to be. I think the only reason we've been connecting them to Jedis, you know, it seems like at least one of them trained as it. Uh, The other one has a, I I thought it was a bad wig, but it's not. It's a Padawan braid uh, that sticks out. And I was like, that's, uh, so they're definitely some sort of, uh, order-aligned person, but really what that means is they just have acts. What Your alignment in the Force seems to be based upon what pool of Force wisdom you're pulling from. Uh, the Sith have a set of rules if you decide to pull from that. If you want to be like a dark Jedi like we're talking about here, we don't really know the boundaries of that, but it seems like they have some Jedi like powers uh, and skills, and some sort of like hierarchy, but they also seem to be borrowing some things that we would consider Sith, and that there's two of them very specifically, and they seem to be like lusting uh, after power. But I think it's a great balance, uh, especially for Ahsoka, who uh, was one of the first uh, people to accurately judge. That the Jedi of the Old Republic were political night idiots. Full
2: of shit. <laughs> yes. Mace Windu, Yoda, ever heard of them? Terrible, terrible decisions were made during the Clone Wars. Exactly.
0: <laughs> um, uh, so uh, I, I'm i excited that we've uh, moved beyond uh, that white hat, dark hat binary, but not in the sense that we don't know which one of them are villains. Like the Night Sister lady uh, is trying to find Thrawn. Uh, I just threw context clues of these first two episodes. Seems like a really bad idea. Ahsoka thinks it's going to kick off another war. And we know from the Mandalorian, that's the dude that they're waiting for uh, to uh, restart the Empire with the Imperial Remnant. So I'm excited in the spread. Before we move on to the next point, though, I do want to re-roll back uh, to Hera and ask Joanna a question. We've seen uh, from recent developments in Andor with Mon Mothma that being a mother and a general of the rebellion is makes things very difficult. Where's her son?
2: Where's Jason Syndulla? Why Do is she sneak- jumping
0: in the Phantom and getting shot at with blasters? She has a she has a boy.
2: If she were a dad, would you ask the same questions? Maybe? Yes, yes.
0: <laughs> I'm still mad that Han Solo died without liberating Kashyyyk and Chewie's family. Okay. Life debts are very important to me. Where's Where's the son?
2: I mean, we don't know how old... I mean, so Rebels has this epilogue where Jason looks like, what, nine? Ten? Something like that?
0: Yes, sure. Right,
2: um, Don't know quite how old he's supposed to be here. I think we see him in a shot in the trailer. I would love to see Jason Sindula, but I believe that mothers can lean all the way in and do whatever they want to do. So, you know, sorry. Sorry you don't believe in working women, Dave. <laughs> That's <laughs> Okay. That's well, she's also,
1: she's also currently busy mothering the relationship between Ahsoka and Sabine. Yeah, everyone. So, is you know. true. Yes. It's true. It's
0: <laughs> true. I'm all for Mother General. I'm just saying Mother General, is it also the person you send with the Jedi to investigate the shady shit? She's a Mother General.
2: The thing that I like about Hera, based on the split second of the epilogue, is that she seems to be very much a, like, take your child to work day kind of mom, Mm. um, which is not (laughs) how Mom Mothma approached her uh, relationship with her daughter. That was very much like, leave my daughter out of it. So, you know, we'll see. We'll see about young Jason. Theory corner. We love a theory. Remember when we used to do theories all the time when we were talking about Game of Thrones? We're just going to do some light theories here. We, don't, I mean, I, I actually am not going to speak for Dave. Um, I don't know anything for sure of what's coming on Ahsoka. Um, but what I do know is that when we get the star map, which <laughs> Neil called a map MacGuffin, one of our House of Our Listeners emailed me today and just called it a map Guffin, which I really liked. Nice. Um, I was like, see, J.J. Abrams, you can do a map Guffin, and it is fine. Um. <laughs> seems to show us a galaxy far, far away from the one that we're in.
1: Another galaxy further, further away.
2: Further, further away. And so it's possible that we are going to jump, probably, it's probable, we're going to jump to a faraway galaxy. Some backstory for people who might not track dates and timelines, the complication has always been with Lucasfilm doing these animated shows and these like, big players in the Rebellion or these big players in the Jedi Order or something like that is like, then you're like, wait, where was Ahsoka (laughs) during Revenge of the Sith? And wait, where was, you know, where was the ghost during this, that, and the other thing? And um, part of that is just taking players off the board. So Ezra Bridger was just sort of like snapped away (laughs) essentially at the end of, of Rebels Um, and Ahsoka was, you know, taken off the board, uh, in, in Clone Wars and all this sort of stuff like that. So it's a tricky telling a story in between these, um, signposts kind of storytelling, uh, that they're doing with these shows. Mandalorian has to do it too. You know, you're headed towards something, you know, Grogu isn't around in The Last Jedi. So what happened to Grogu? You know, that's the kind of question you have to ask yourself. He just How let his Lord guy, Luke
1: Skywalker, <laughs> his best friend in the whole world, go down like that? <laughs> Grogu. Um,
2: canceled. So what, <laughs> what this galaxy further and further away, to quote, quote Neil Miller, uh, opens up the possibility for, and one that's not easy to get to, one that's extremely hard to get to, you gotta do a brass Rubik's Cube and, use, and go to a specific, which Stonehenge in order to figure out where to go and then steal nine hyperdrives and build Stargate question mark in order to get there, um, could put a bunch of characters off the board in a way that they then don't have to worry about where was Carol Danvers all this time sort of thing, sort of questions. Neil, what do you think about that possibility?
1: I will say this. It's the most intriguing thing. About the show so far is the idea that we may be going to another galaxy. I mean, like, I don't, I'm sure many people are excited to see what Th- Grand Admiral Thrawn looks like in live action. I don't particularly care yet. I do want to go to another galaxy and see just how many desert planets it has. <laughs> <laughs> but I will say, In all seriousness, though, if we get to the end of this eight-episode run and we don't go to the other galaxy, I will be genuinely disappointed. Like They've came up with a pretty cool MacGuffin. They went to this pretty awesome witchy Stonehenge Force uh, map place that I thought was great. You can't do all that and then not take me to a different galaxy. And there's a lot of opportunity, especially visually, to show us something that feels very new, very fresh for Star Wars. One of the things we liked about Andor was all the different locations that that show ended up on that felt like new places within the Star Wars universe. So if there is potential to create a, you know, new landscape in this new galaxy and tell some story there, I'm kind of into it, but it's a big promise. Like, it's a big promise to bite off for an eight episode miniseries. We will see if they land it.
2: Dave, how do you feel about going to where the uh, purgles like to mate? Oh, I mean, or, yeah. uh, I'm I'm really into it. Maybe
0: we get to see more Thrawn Easter egg uh, stuff. I uh, have long wanted to see the, and forgive me if I mispronounce this, I don't often get to say it out loud, the Ysalamiri, the lizards that absorb the force around them. So Thrawn, like in the books, like like to walk around with two of those on his shoulders to basically make him Jedi-proof. Wouldn't that make him much more formidable to the degree that you need to pull in, say, a Mandalorian or a group of Mandalorians to eventually battle him uh, because the Force users are not as good around him. I think that would be fun. Uh, But I do think, yes, it opens a basically a next-door secret galaxy uh, that people could be in and bypass uh, moments of canon. But also because of that, it allows us to make Uh, Star Wars even more weird. Uh, I'm going to keep hammering this point. George Lucas, when he made Star Wars, a lot of it was just really weird. Like the weirdest idea you could think about, put it on screen. That's since become like, quote unquote, canon. We know the names of these races. We know what planets they come off in. This is an example to in a, you know, post-ILM world build another corner of the Star Wars galaxy, which I know they've been trying to do I- internally at Lucasfilm uh, since after The Last Jedi because that was initially, like, the Ryan Johnson uh, project was, like, make a trilogy that is somewhere else but is still Star world Wars. world out
2: there. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And so I'm hoping that's what we get uh, opened up to. Uh But that being said, I don't think they're going to get trapped there in Ahsoka. I think we could definitely visit it. Uh, But I think we have to sort of like drive him back there before uh, the rise of the First Order.
2: There's been some indication, though, that the next show, which is Skeleton Crew, might be taking place in the galaxy further and further away. This is sort of like a backdoor pilot for Jude Law Space Daddy. So excited for that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's like a rust. These Star Wars <laughs> shows are like Russian nesting dolls of backdoor pilots at this point.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. Um, the other thing that we're going to talk about in Theory Corner here, um, and I'm really excited for Neil to just go full wild guess since you don't have any animation backstory to help you here. We have a masked individual who we never see their face. They're an inquisitor. Inquisitors are, um, you met them in the Obi-Wan show, if you watched all of that, the, uh, Red lights, spinning red lightsaber baddies who work for Vader. We get an inquisitor named Marek, M-A-R-R-O-K, referred to as a he/him, uh, by Balin. Any thoughts or feelings? Force tingling feelings. Is this someone? Okay, let me just ask you this way: Do you want to think that this is someone, a character that is known in the canon that people know, or? Are you fine with this? Is just a inquisitor who doesn't like to take his mask off, and that makes it easy for us to just cast a stunt up. Fascinating.
0: Um,
1: I have <laughs> questions. One, yeah. so this is this is the character that Ahsoka fights in the second episode.
2: Yeah, right mm-hmm.
1: with the very cool hilt lightsaber.
2: That's the other question: is like who who would be because Ahsoka has struck down inquisitors with like one blow before. So like who would be good enough to go toe to toe with Ahsoka Tano? So sure. Go ahead. Yeah.
1: So. Uh, my my initial impression of this character is that this is a droid, but apparently that doesn't seem true. I was like is that a droid in a helmet? But so like in theory this could be you could you could take any character that we haven't met yet. Like this could be Ezra, but probably not, right? Ezra was like a good guy if I'm
2: yeah, So who knows what's happened to him in the intervening sure. years. But yeah. this That's a, th- I mean, I will say that's a popular Theory it, for some, theory, I, it, for it doesn't some really reason. make sense to me. But like a lot of people are like, is that Ezra? So maybe you know.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, I I love the design of the character. I love that they have like a Lord Buckethead style evil Jedi <laughs> guy. Uh, <laughs> but I honestly had read that character as potentially being one of like like just like a super high end battle droid. But if that's a person under that mask. Uh sure, I like Ezra. Can I ask you guys a question about Ezra? Not to get too far off the topic. Of
2: course. Yeah. yeah.
1: All right. So the the way the story of Ezra goes, Ezra and Thrawn, right, is that Ezra is perceived as being dead. How sure are you at the end of Ezra's story that Ezra's gone? Or like, does rebels leave it where like he might still be out there? I ask because this show's definitely going to bring him back, it seems. <laughs> And is that going to be too much of a jump from? I don't know. There, one of the things that bothers me about a lot of this, you know, multiversal storytelling is the impermanence of it, especially of character deaths, right? So it's like if Ezra's death at the end of Rebels, I'm assuming that's what happens, uh, was to be this impactful thing, is bringing him back in this show going to make that less important of an event?
2: Um, I'm going to try to do this, and then Dave is going to correct me if I get it wrong. Um,
1: Excellent.
2: (laughs) Ezra Ezra doesn't really die at the end of Rebels. And like the reason why you don't think it's a death, like, narratively, we watch a lot of uh, film and television, is a major character just sacrificed and died a couple episodes previous. So, like, you know, uh, uh, Kanan Jarrus is dead. Ezra Bridger is snatched away by space whales who, uh, you know, can go into hyperspace. And so basically these purgles, these space whales with tentacles, wrap themselves around the ship that contains Thrawn and Ezra Bridger. And basically when I said snapped away, they just sort of like, peace out to, I guess, this other galaxy. Sure. And they so- jump into
1: the mycelial network and come out <laughs> somewhere
2: else in the multiverse. <laughs> yeah. And so the end of Rebels, there's this epilogue taking place uh, seemingly after the events of the original trilogy. Ahsoka Tano, looking a little older, shows up and Sabine is like, I thought all this time Ezra wanted me to just take care of his home, planet of Lothal. But what he really meant was when he said, "I'm counting on you," is come find me. So we're gonna go find Ezra Bridger. So like it was caked into the animated series that like the search for Ezra Bridger is the next chapter in these people's story. Dave, did I get something wrong, or would you like to add anything?
0: Nope, nope, that's that's accurate. I do want to guess on Merrick
2: though. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Neil, does that make? I I, yeah. I just want to.
0: That that
1: actually makes it make a lot more sense. Yeah. Because I was I'm like, this would be you. weird if that character was supposed to because the way they talk about him in these episodes is like they kind of believed he was dead. Well, he's been gone a while, so they went a whole
0: rebellion. They went a whole original trilogy, not talking about him at all. So okay. we yeah. just had to we had to catch up. So
1: he's he's pres- presumed dead, or it's one of those things where they have to fill out the death certificate at some point when somebody goes missing. Right. <laughs> like... He's
0: just like
2: so far gone that at this point all he right. dies.
0: He dies like three days before Rogue One happens. So they yeah. had to deal with a whole bunch of stuff before they sure. finally get to. It
2: was a lot of admin, back. you know, a lot of paperwork to do. Um, yeah. I I do want to get back. To Dave's guesses because I'm really excited to hear that, but um, I just want to agree with you, Neil, that I I hate when like endless franchising brings people back. My exception is Star Wars. I used to be resistant to uh the constant resurrection of Darth Maul. Now I'm not. I'm all in on it. But like you know, when like Letty, I hate a fake out. I I will say this. I'm in my Doctor Who rewatch of the Matt Smith era (laughs) and season two. When Stephen Moffat, who was running Doctor Who and Sherlock at the same time, was an absolute menace to society where he did fake-out deaths on both <laughs> Sherlock and Doctor Who, and it put me off fake-out deaths forever. So, you know, you know, I share your feelings on this one. Um, Dave, what's your American theory?
0: So, we, Joanne and I were talking off-podcast about a certain actor known for his opinions about Star Wars who apparently won't talk about Star Wars on his cameos which is funny because he voiced uh, a character that was very close to Ahsoka Tano, uh, Darth Maul. I'm talking about Sam Witwer, uh, the voice actor. He also uh, played in a video game called Star Wars The Force Unleashed and Star Wars The Force Unleashed 2, a character that was a, an apprentice of Darth Vader, but uh, that would, they would call him Starkiller. But his actual name was Garen Merrick. Spelled differently... But here we have a gentleman that is about 6'1", that is, you know, uh, suddenly uh, trained in the dark side of the Force, two to the degree of Anakin, uh, of Ahsoka Tano. Wouldn't it be weird if Anakin had a dark side padawan that gets unmasked and Starkiller gets reintroduced back into our canon after being absolutely deleted? And then also gives Sam Witwer some uh, work and uh, explains why he's being very careful about talking about Star Wars.
2: That would thrill me to know it if Sam Witwer <laughs> is an Ahsoka Tano. I love Sam Witwer.
1: I love that Sam the Whitmer evidence voice, is like he, he won't talk about Star Wars on his cameos.
0: I, I mean. <laughs> it did seem weird because <laughs> yeah. he seems to really like talking about Star Wars otherwise. That's fair. It's fair.
2: Interesting. Interesting. All right. Last but not least, before we uh, exit this Ahsoka discussion, I want to throw to you my pals who are so good at talking to me about visuals and polygons. Neil already mentioned this a little bit about like that you feel that the world feels big. Um, I've seen some criticism, you know, the, my friend and pal and great TV critic, Dan Feinberg actually thought in his review, compared this to the visuals from Obi-Wan. And I was watching it and I was like, I mean, I know we're not on location the way that Andor was, Um, but to me, it felt less hemmed in than some of the volume shows have felt to me recently. So I'm tempted to agree with Neil, Dave. What do you think, polygon wise?
0: Oh yeah, I mean, I don't. I think it has just a lot more to do with uh, staging, uh, especially uh, where you're placing your action sequences. So, uh, for instance having Sabine's hideout being in like the old power center that's like raised off the ground that therefore reduces the amount of like things that you can do there, but not in an artificial way, uh, is a, I think a great use of, uh, something like the volume. Um, and, and I think like Ahsoka on the temple planet at the beginning, uh, is a pretty good use of the volume because it's, contained, uh, even when she's fighting the battle droids, it's sort of contained in an arena sort of thing. What you really want to avoid, and the stuff that really got me in Obi-Wan, is when he's chasing people over rooftops, or when he's fighting off against Darth Vader on a whole goddamn planet, and they can't move more than 10 or 15 feet to the right or left in any given sequence of motion. Uh, Ahsoka, so far, has been able to work around that uh, like, for instance, something like the speeder bike sequence, which is, I would guess, like, 100% like House of the Dragon volume style, where they're yeah. just blowing air that at her. That bridge. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is shot in a way where you're not thinking about it. All the special effects are working with the wind effects with her much longer hair that is very eye-catching to make you feel like you're actually zipping down a highway. They've just, they've learned how to use it, I think, more than uh, they knew uh, how to use it in Obi-Wan. I think initially... The power of it uh, was just so amazing. They're like, why wouldn't we set you know something on this you know gigantic planet where we could control the lighting and stuff? And didn't really think so much about how that works with like the action choreography and the cinematography. So far, I'm not concerned about that yet. I think a great another great example is the stuff that we're doing with our dark Jedi, gray Jedi, whatever. Um, because they're so purposeful and deadly in their very precise movements. It's actually the less that they move, the cooler they are, which, again, adds to just knowing what you're going for with your action cinematography and knowing how to shoot it. So two episodes in, so far, so good. Uh, who knows what happens when we get to another universe? <laughs> but uh, as of right now, they're being very smart about it.
2: Yeah, I think um, I when I was rewatching The two examples of the volume used in intentional tight spaces that I always think about are the twin bridge sequences in House of the Dragon, where everyone's crowded on a bridge. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, even the dragons have to, like, you know, nestle in. Um, (laughs) And uh, in The Jedi, the Dave Filoni uh, episode with the introduction of Ahsoka Tano in live action, she fights uh, who we now know as a night Sister Morgan on like a narrow bridge surrounded by water, and so when you have those, to Dave's point, when you have those natural boundaries on a fight, then we, the audience, don't feel like, wait, well, why aren't they moving? Whereas the Obi Wan Vader, um, or Anakin, if you prefer, fight in, um, in Obi Wan. Vader would say Anakin last... is dead, Joanna. Yeah, <laughs> 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 the last, um fight that they have is supposed to take place in this like wide expansive rocky planet and it just looks quite dumb because of the structure uh structures on their movement um neil miller what do you want to add to this volume discussion
1: uh well no i mean i agree with what all of what y'all have said they this show does seem to be doing a good job of creating spaces that even though physically they are contained they do sort of they can still look kind of big like the 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 map uh the Mabaguffin scene with the little Stonehenge thing I thought was was pretty good. I also think that they're leaning a little bit more into some of the stuff they do best, which is the ship exteriors look great and the characters look great inside the ships with the volume outside the window and I think that has worked so well for Mandalorian um you know, I think having a show where your a lot of it is going to be traversing in ships and chasing each other around, and having conversations inside of ship interiors uh is gonna be really good and uh yeah, I just think it's it's funny once they wh- whenever they jump in the ship and we see the exterior of like space battle stuff, I'm just like yes. This is what ILM <laughs> is here for. Like, there are people just who work at ILM just sit around all year and are like, "Let's do another space battle." And I love it when uh, when they get the chance because that stuff still looks top notch. I mean, they're you know some of the ships zooming around in this show look as good as the stuff in the movies, and it's just because it's basically the same people working on it. So, um, yeah, keep giving me more ship battles. That will that will make me forget about the scenes. Like, there's a scene where Ahsoka they go and they first meet the guy who's running the uh the plant where they're disassembling all the stuff and they're supposed to be outside and it reminded me of some of those scenes in Mandalorian where it's like we're supposed to be on this landing pad outside and it's clearly on a stage
0: <laughs> and so
1: some of that stuff is still a little rough but they're using it sparingly they're choosing when to use when, when to use uh, the volume for uh, outside battle stuff. And I, I think it's working pretty well so far.
2: I love that. Also, before we go, I just want to shout out like a reminder that Filoni was hired onto the Clone Wars in the first place years and years ago as a storyboard artist. Like he's an artist and I just really feel like that artistic angle comes like i i love the ahsoka font i love the cro- closing credits i think they're beautiful <laughs> um i love all the fiddly designs on like every single temple and map guffin and whatever the case may be um sabine wren has always been an artist so it's really fun like her artistic eye is what helps them figure this out here thron is a lover of art if and when we know we know when lars mickelson shows up as thron that is going to be a component. And so I just love that it's like a celebration of art show that is like so beautiful. Um, and I'm just, I feel so lucky that we have the show and shout out the continuing hot David Tennant summer. Um, it has just been a great time to be a David Tennant (laughs) fan.
1: (laughs) Can I say that? I love that droid, um, who's like really into lightsabers. It's very much the avatar of, of the people who are really into like, fantasy armor and swords with names and shit that, that we finally have a character who's so deep into lightsabers that they can tell them <laughs> all apart if it you know and if the show doesn't work out he could always go work at a disney park because he can go help kids build their own lightsabers so good for he's him like, why isn't he remember- at
0: disney park already my god i mean <laughs>
2: <laughs> he's like i remember every wand i've given to any wizard. right
1: he's like i remember um, the hilts anyway. i'm like yeah tell me mm-hmm. about the hilts let's go mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> All right, that's all the Ahsoka stuff that I have to talk about, which was plenty. Anything else you guys want to say before we move on?
1: No, let's do
2: it. Neil, it's all you. Go.
1: (laughs) All right, it's time to give away some very important awards for this week's debate. We are, of course, debating which uh, animated character turned live-action... Is the best. And uh, first of all, thanks to all of our listeners. We got a bunch of really fun, some very weird emails this week, interpreting what exactly this prompt was. So uh, we're going to explain the rules through our dismissals, sort of. Uh, (laughs) Off the top, some nice try awards. These uh, definitely don't qualify. But uh, fun nonetheless. We got multiple emails in support of a gentleman named Ethan Slater, who I have recently learned is uh, mixed in some drama with Ariana Grande. But apparently, (laughs) this gentleman (laughs) played SpongeBob SquarePants on the stage. And as much as I love SpongeBob, and I love things that happen on stages... That is not quite in the spirit of the prompt because uh, the SpongeBob musical was on a stage and not on a screen. But shout out to apparently Ethan Slater's wonderful performance bringing SpongeBob to life for the masses <laughs> before apparently ruining Ariana Grande's marriage. I don't know. I don't know the whole story. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's another 50-minute podcast. Probably, it's a whole different, a different podcast. episode.
1: So that is our first I did, nice a mini, try award. I did
2: a mini, yeah, mini tea time with uh, Dave and Neil before we started. Yeah, it was recording.
1: illuminating. Um, <laughs> a couple of other ones that uh, took place on screen, but also sort of on a stage and don't quite fulfill uh, the needs of this prompt, but we enjoy the effort nonetheless. We got nominations for Eddie Murphy as Gumby and Pedro Pascal as Super Mario from the television show Saturday Night Live. Uh, We needed more, I think, more than a Saturday Night Live sketch to qualify as a a good live action
0: adaptation. Also, I would argue Bob Hoskins is the Mario pick, not Pedro Pascal. Well, Bob
2: Hoskins would be, except for something that Neil's going to say in a second, right?
0: Sure.
1: Yes. Um, So we now, uh, we have two nice tries from a category we like to call uh, adapted maybe too many times, I think. And definitely live action before animated. And the first one is Robin Williams in the film Hook, where he played Peter Pan. Uh, Wonderfully, multiple versions of Peter Pan, old guy Peter Pan, getting his mojo back Peter Pan. But Peter Pan was not originally adapted directly from uh, books to animation. There were several live action Peter Pans long before Robin Williams played him in Hook. And so it it doesn't quite qualify, although... It's a really good one. Uh, really good performance.
0: There is a weird end around here that I gave some thought to. The And I apologize, I'm going to bring this out to my co-hosts who have already heard me talk about it. But <laughs> I would accept that Robin Williams is a version of Peter Pan that we actually haven't seen before because it's an adult version and that's usually not covered in the fiction. If somebody had done like an animated adult Peter Pan, then I'd be much more inclined to assume that Robin Williams had like done that because that's outside of the realm of the original story, which Hook also is. So I see why this is a thing, but also it's like, we all love Hook. We get it. Rufio, imagine dinners. We get it. We get you guys like Hook. We (laughs) we understand.
2: I think it's also, we want to drill down on like, I mean, we'll have some leeway here and there, but we want to drill down on like a a live action actor trying to embody a cartoon character that we are like intimately familiar with. And yeah, and I just think that as much as I like the Disney Peter Pan, that animated Peter Pan, Peter Pan is so many other things also. That's not like the only thing I think of when I think of Peter Pan. I think that was sort of the issue.
0: Yeah, if it was just the Disney one, nobody would clap to bring Tinkerbell back because that doesn't happen. That happens in the play. But now it's like a huge applause line that people accept you could bring fairies back to life (laughs) by clapping. That's the play. Anyway, sorry. I'm sorry. Too much into into Peter Pan.
1: I feel like a similar (laughs) rule could be applied to, like, Robin Hood, right? Because Kevin Costner was not basing his Robin Hood on the sexy fox. He was basing it on previous Robin
2: Hood. Maybe he should (laughs) have. (laughs)
1: Right. At least (laughs) (laughs) accent-wise. Elsewhere in our nice tries, we have Michael Sarah in Scott Pilgrim, which uh, does feel like it should be. An adaptation of a cartoon character but it really was just an adaptation of a character in a comic book who has since i'm i believe become animated i think they made a scott pilgrim show where the cast all came back so scott pilgrim sort of the reverse of this and michael Sarah, pretty good scott pilgrim um i mean listen if scott pilgrim qualified mary elizabeth winstead as ramona flowers would (laughs) very much be in the discussion but it does not And then finally, this one, uh, I love these, uh, especially the person who tried to sneak Geralt of Rivia into yet another debate that really speaks to my heart. Uh, But with respect to both Bella Ramsey and Henry Cavill, we are dismissing Ellie from The Last of Us and Geralt of Rivia uh, from The Witcher, even though they were uh, both adapted from animated video games. Video games didn't quite fit the bill. We were looking for... Uh, Animated TV, animated movies. uh, Yeah. I think this is a different
0: debate where both of these people could come back and represent their video game characters.
2: Yeah.
1: I mean, at the pace Hollywood is going with these video game adaptations, it won't be long before we can have that totally separate debate. Uh, So those are our nice tries. Those are close, but not not quite what we were looking for. Now it is time to give some pretrial dismissals. Some of these are pretty iconic. So you're going to wonder, oh my God, who did make the debate if we're (laughs) dismissing some, some icons of adaptation, including the two leads of the Flintstone movie, John Goodman as Fred Flintstone and the legend Rick Moranis as Barney Rubble, two fantastic performances in an era before when this was like a quaint idea making an (laughs) live-action adaptation of a cartoon. You mean a Um, Honeymooners
0: movie? No, no, no. A (laughs) Flintstones movie.
1: (laughs) Right. The Flintstones, uh, iconically weird film. Um, Not, unfortunately, going to make the debate. Also, uh, Hank Azaria as Gargamel in the Smurfs movies. (laughs) I can confirm for you that we will loop back to these Smurfs movies. because really? <laughs> the, the director of these Smurfs movies has made other live-action adaptations of cartoons that we will be discussing. Um, but Hank Azaria as Gargamel, a pretty good one. I remember enjoying Hank Azaria's performance in those two Smurf movies that I definitely watched both of. Um, but it doesn't rise to the level of being in the debate. We also have and Meyer. Who knew that and Meyer was going to get a shout-out on a trial by content? <laughs> as Jaron Arbuckle... Uh, in the Garfield films uh, next to Bill Murray, right? It was Bill Murray in the films, yes. not Lorenzo Music.
0: Yeah, Lorenzo Music uh, <laughs> played the Bill Murray part in Ghostbusters.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, so John Arbuckle d- did not make it. Uh, another one, this one calling all the way back to probably our, our, our Gen X and Boomer listeners, uh, however many of those we we have. Stick
0: around, I'm going to need you later on. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but uh, Mason Gamble, the young actor who brought to life Dennis the Menace in the live action movie. That one also, uh, wasn't Walter Matthau in Dennis the Menace? Hey
2: Mr. Wilson. Uh, yeah. But Walter wasn't, Matthau. Yeah. But Dennis the Menace yeah, never mind. I don't need to debate Dennis I saved my debating energy for that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so Dennis the Menace, great, but didn't make the debate. Here's one. Uh, folks may not know uh, that this was based on animated shorts, but it very much was. Uh, it is the movie Office Space. And we did get one nomination for Gary Cole as the terrible boss, Bill Lumberg who needs you to come in on Saturday uh, (laughs) as one of the great, great uh, adapted characters. And I love that because it's very easy to forget that Office Space was a series of animated shorts before it was a really great movie shot here in Austin, Texas, where I am currently. So, uh, but, you know, Gary Cole doesn't make the debate. Uh, we now move on to someone who has popped up in our podcasting past many a times, and that is <laughs> Lost star Matthew Fox and his turn as Racer X in the Wachowski's Speed Racer, a movie that I don't think we're done talking about in this debate, which is great. Um, it, is a much malign, it was much maligned at the time, but has since been, I think, reclaimed appropriately as uh, being a, a good movie, actually, or at least a very fun movie. Movie adaptation. Uh, John Goodman also there. He, he seems to show up in a lot of these adaptations. Um, further down the list, we have Angelina Jolie as Maleficent. Uh, one of the, I guess, one of the few Disney characters that are getting a mention, even though we went really hard against Disney live action <laughs> remakes last week. <laughs> uh, but you know, Angelina Jolie's Maleficent is great. As is Brendan Fraser as George of the Jungle. Um,
2: and and Dudley Do-Right
1: and Dudley Do-Right I also think we should sneak in a Skarsgård Tarzan reference uh, to go with George the Jungle because that is another I guess Tarzan sort of fits into the Peter Pan Robin Hood era where it's like not entirely adapted from animated but uh, we appreciate Alexander Skarsgård's workout program for that one (laughs) Uh, and then finally we mentioned her having two movies long before Disney decided to remake every animated movie into live action that is Glenn Close as Cruella DeVille, with apologies to Emma Stone. Glenn Close was there first and better. Um, so there you have now
2: it. I, uh, I, I memory hold Cruella. Emma Stone's
0: <laughs> Remember when Emma Stone we're, was Cruella? We're, we're right the dogs, dogs cool. push her mom <laughs> off the cliff <laughs> so she hates dogs and loves fashion.
1: fashion. Sure. But, you know, she looked great. Loved the haircut. So there you have it. Our pretrial dismissals.
2: Can I add one that we? May- I feel like we cannot shout out Brecken Meyer's John Arbuckle and not shout out Jason Lee as Dave if we're gonna have in the, ah, in the Chipmunks movies, from the Alvin right? And the chipmunks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, okay.
1: Uh-huh.
2: <laughs> if you're gonna have John Arbuckle, you gotta have Dave from Alvin and the Chipmunks. He
1: does get the Alvin scream just right. <laughs> All right, which means we're time. It's time to hit the cream of the crop. Which means, uh, first, our toughest cuts this week. Let's. Let's start with Dave. Dave, what was your toughest cut going into this debate?
0: Mine was a character that appears in a 1990 live-action movie alongside some of the most masterful Jim Henson Company puppets. It is played physically by James Saito and voiced by David Micharan. It is Shredder from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, uh, played by another lost alumni, uh, number two. But this is is his first appearance, and I think his most menacing appearance, uh, and also one that doesn't involve vanilla ice. I'm going to go with the first... Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie, um, Shredder, a, a a ninja that is cool in the comic book where he originates, but really becomes a fool second fiddle to Krang in the animated series. Uh, it was great to see him redeemed as a threat uh, on screen in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, but uh, is not ultimately going to be my pick. Um, I, I don't think I could get the juice uh, for some for Shredder from the Ninja Turtles that I'm going <laughs> to need to be competitive in this poll. I mean. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles
1: is a really good one because it is a direct adaptation of the cartoon. And I think you could get a little juice if you nominated Judith Hogue as April O'Neil because an Mm. iconic April O'Neil performance. She is. But... Uh maybe <laughs> not sure. has freckles
2: did, and always did has she, Did she awaken something in both of you? I, I just mean, feel like that was a It was a 1990 very <laughs> reaction. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Formative
1: Yeah, that, I mean, we're we're going to get a few of those On this particular debate Dave, what would uh, you do
2: if they ever adapted Gadget Hack and Wrench into live action?
0: ha <laughs> <laughs> ha <laughs> 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 I mean, would it be like? Would it be like like who makeup where she has like a mouse like face, but is obviously human underneath it, or would it be like full furry, like avatar level?
2: I don't know what because you we mean, know how Dave? we feel about that. <laughs> what, what do you? What do you want? I your... mean, I
0: think I think who was my reaction to yeah. that? I should just stick Perfect. stick to that. Perfect. Sure.
1: This is, this is maybe the prompt we miss. What is the uh, character you'd want to see adapted to live action that has never been? <laughs> Gadget <laughs> Hack and Wrench was not on my list, but it would be on Dave's. Uh, <laughs> Joanna, what's your toughest cut this week?
2: Okay, we do largely agree that the Disney live action remakes of their animated films are unnecessary mm-hmm. sometimes unwatchable almost always and terrible yeah. and we don't like them and i don't even like this movie but i do really love this performance so it's luke evans as guest on in the live action beauty and the beast a movie i don't really like but i think he is pitch perfect uh, not just in his a uh, beautiful singing voice but like as as guest on he's just like really crushed the uh over like the over-the-top cartoonishness of him while bringing him down to earth so i'm a i'm a big fan of luke evans in in that but like if i could just get a super cut of just the guest on and i guess uh <laughs> shout out to the lovely josh gad as Lafu. if i could just get like weren't they were supposed to have their own show like they were so good they were supposed to be a guest on in like disney plus show when disney plus is like i don't know a guest on show <laughs> um <laughs> so um yeah i just i like the movie's not good but he's great in yeah
1: i agree that i mean and honestly that could be a pretty important criteria for this particular debate which is the movie doesn't have to be good it's really about the performance and remember that that character remember
2: neil said that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) well i'm gonna get to that right now because my toughest cut is a movie that i have unabashedly loved since i discovered it in the 1980s uh it's based off of a comics character from the early 20th century who was animated in feature films in the 1930s Uh, that is of course uh, i'm talking about robert altman's popeye a movie that (laughs) my in my life experience (laughs) i have i have learned that i am one of the only people i know who really loves this movie and it's mostly because of Shelley duvall as olive oil um and you know a lot of these performances we're going to talk about can in some ways get into like feeling like cosplay where it's like someone's just looks like the character is doing the mannerisms but very very few get the vibe quite the way uh Shelley Duvall got olive oil um in in the movie Popeye especially acting against a very weird performance from Robin Williams <laughs> like he just went to a very weird place for Popeye. And Shelley Duvall is just an absolute delight. She sings. She does all the, the fun, like, olive motions with those big clogged shoes, stomping around uh, Sweet Haven, chasing around Sweet Pea. And it's, you know, it's, it's weird. It's sometimes very bad. But I will always remember Shelley Duvall as olive oil. Because he's large.
0: He's large. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Great pick. All right. Great pick. I think that means it's time to get down to the actual debate because you guys were so nice in voting for Jurassic World Dominion last week. I get to kick it off this week, which is good because I'm back with the fringe candidate, but it's still correct. Let me tell you why. Gen Xers, elder millennials, you might be able to help me out a little bit more in setting the scene uh, that not a lot of us probably got to live through, but I'm absolutely sure that you've heard about it. This movie called Star Wars comes out and it is like (laughs) the biggest blockbuster ever ever And uh, George Lucas is suddenly pressured to make more Star Wars stuff because he has kept the merchandising rights and this huge boom happens with Star Wars toys. People want to play Star Wars and they want to know what's happening next in Star Wars. So in a uh, treatment for uh, the sequel uh, to Star Wars, the Star Wars 2 that would eventually become Empire Strikes Back, George Lucas is like, I initially thought uh, Darth Vader would be a bounty hunter, but now he's turned sort of into a dark knight. And I mean that in the not Batman way, but in the (laughs) uh, more traditional knight's way and chivalry such. Uh, But still like this idea of having a uh, bounty hunter. And so he's like, what I'll do is I'll give uh, Darth Vader like a right hand man that can work outside of the Empire's law and et cetera, et cetera, really be a threat to this uh, burgeoning rebellion. And uh, so they went back and they looked at some of uh, Rob McQuarrie's old designs uh, for Darth Vader that didn't work out and found a really cool helmet design that they passed off to a designer that would eventually become a director after becoming a special effects guru called uh, Joe Johnson. Maybe you've heard of him <laughs> if you're a fan of uh, movies. Uh, he designed this character, this bounty hunter, that they named Boba Fett. And the reason there was such a push to get this designed, even while the Empire Strikes Back script was being rewritten and uh, became the form that it actually was was because there was a Star Wars holiday special that George Lucas had decided to do. It has now been named not canon because it is extremely corny, uh, but I'm sure you could find it uh, streaming online. And part of this Star Wars holiday special was an animated sequence where uh, Luke and C-3PO and R2-D2 have to fly a Y-wing not an X-Wing, very weird, to (laughs) go save Han Solo and Chewbacca who have found a talisman uh, that is uh, infected with an imperial virus that puts humans to sleep. So they have to be rescued by uh, some non-humans. Luke Skywalker passes out immediately once he gets there. So it's left up to our non-humans, among whom is a dinosaur-riding, shock-prod-rifle-holding Boba Fett, who introduces himself as a friend. He helps uh, them get... A uh, antidote for the sleeping sickness that was attached to the talisman, uh, but then it is revealed through broadcast that he is actually Vader's right-hand man. Uh, C-3PO uses that uh, phrase to describe Boba Fett before he says, see you again, friends, and rockets up out of the Millennium Falcon and out of the animated short. And people are like, that guy looks cool. And then there was an action figure released, and people were like, that guy looks cool. This is all before... Empire Strikes Back actually comes out, and we actually get to see what makes Boba Fett cool, which is different from the animated version, but fully realized by actor Jeremy Bullock. He's playing Boba Fett under the suit, voiced by another person that would eventually be voiced over by Tamara Morrison after he canonically became Boba Fett. But don't worry about that. I'm specifically talking about the physical performance. This guy... Marches. This guy doesn't uh, shrink before Vader. This guy talks back to Vader. This guy, while transfor- uh, while transporting a frozen and carbonite Han Solo, hears Luke remove his blaster from his holster and manages to end around him to keep him away from the landing pad, eventually getting Han Solo back to Jabba the Hutt uh, for the beginning of Return of the Jedi, which is a movie we don't have to talk about uh, because we're just talking about how cool Boba Fett is after being in an animated series. So my nominee here goes from having like 14 lines in a nine-minute animated short to four lines in The Empire Strikes Back, but gets cooler. So unlike some of the other people that you will be hearing described in this, um, this is not an actor doing an impression of a character that's established This is an actor leaning into the fact that the character looks cool in live action and was designed that way to make a mystery box action figure that you could put whatever you want into it. And it was great and it was cool. And then Disney Plus happened and now I know fucking too much about Boba Fett. So (laughs) for this debate, I'm saying Jerry Bullock as Boba Fett in Empire Strikes Back, I'm hoping this very narrow focus Plus, some of our older listeners will help deliver me a victory. But (laughs) here come my co-hosts with some excellent other choices. Coming in second place is going to be Neil uh, off the back of Alice in Wonderland.
1: Well, Dave, I'm glad that you mentioned doing an impression, right? Because a lot of this poll is going (laughs) to depend on whether or not you think an impression is good enough. And in some cases, I think it is. Because if you're going to do an impression, why not do it of one of the most iconic characters and voices of all time? Uh, But first, I want to take you back to 2002. Uh, This is a year when Warner Brothers brought together (laughs) a young screenwriter named James Gunn. You've heard of him. And a director named Raja Gosnell, who had previously uh, directed the movies Never Been Kissed and Big Mama's House. But most importantly for my argument to bring this all back around... Uh, Was an assistant editor on Robert Altman's Popeye in 1980 and went on to create this film called Scooby Doo, the movie, based on a television series, animated television series that began in the late 60s and is, as far as I know, still running, um, but definitely ran deep into the 2000s, the various adaptations of Scooby Doo. And For all of those years, almost all of those years, with a few exceptions, this character was brought to life by the iconic voice of America's Top 40 Countdown, Casey Kasem. And that seems just like a tall order. Like Who would want to take on that role (laughs) that was voiced by Casey Kasem? And it turned out that it was Matthew Lillard was perfect. And I'm, of course, talking about... Shaggy from Scooby-Doo, uh, who was in this 2002 movie that ultimately became a PG-rated studio comedy with an impossibly hot cast of our foremost like young stars that features the Mystery Inc. crew going to a sp- spooky version of an MTV Spring Break Island, and that's basically the story. <laughs> the rest of it is uh, the ca- characters doing wonderful... Uh, amazing cosplay versions. We have Freddie Prinze Jr. as Fred. We got Sarah Michelle Geller as Daphne. The chemistry alone between these two was so palpable. As Joanna mentioned in prep, it fueled a multi decade marriage between those two actors. Uh, we, have, of course, and this one was tough because I could have chosen Linda Cardellini as Velma because not only is it an iconic performance as Velma brought Velma to live action, Um, but has really fueled the cosplay industry since, in the 20-some years since. Um, But it really is on Matthew Lillard's ability to get all the mannerisms of Shaggy correct, get the voice of Shaggy correct, fit into those uh, corduroy bell-bottoms, have a cutesy romance with a potentially demonic Isla Fisher, and have incredible stoner chemistry with a CGI dog. (laughs) <laughs> that is what you had to pull off for Shaggy. It's a high bar and Matthew Lillard absolutely crushes it uh, like he does an eggplant sandwich with chocolate sauce. A stoner <laughs> icon, uh, an incredible just, like I said, it's, it is an impression. It's an impression that was so good of Casey Kasem's Shaggy voice that Matthew Lillard has since replaced Casey Kasem I mean, he. I think he retired uh, as the voice of Shaggy. Like in 2010, they they just switched over to Matthew Lillard because they were like, this is now the definitive Shaggy.
2: Casey Kasem did it. Did he retire from life in 2014? Sure. Yes. Love and love and respect.
1: He retired from voicing Shaggy in 2009. <laughs> he, you know, he was getting old. Yeah. Uh, so there you have it. My my choice this week: Matthew Lillard as Shaggy in a, a movie that I think a lot of people remember as having a lot of bad CGI, which sure it it did, especially for the time, but the characterizations, the bringing those the mystery ink characters to life, I think was has always been spot on and Matthew Lillard is the the tip of that spear.
0: I feel like your uh younger audience is going to be battling my older audience unless <laughs> Joanna can split the difference. Joanna, who are you bringing to this debate?
2: Um, I'm going to shamelessly ride the wave that is Barb and summer and, uh, and pick the great Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn. Not everyone knows that Harley Quinn was introduced first in the animated, the Batman, the animated series, but she was not a comic book character. She was created specifically for Batman, the animated series and made her debut in 1992 in Joker's favor. Um, Here's what I'll say. Let's let's go back in time to when we were talking about how the movie doesn't have to be good for the performance <laughs> and the character to be good. Because Suicide Squad is not a well liked or loved movie. The original Suicide Squad. It has its defenders, and there are definitely people who it will are really like, good when they the release air, the air cut. Release the air <laughs> cut. Yeah. Okay. Neil's one of them, apparently. Um,
0: but- <laughs> God no. <laughs> you give a mouse a Snyder cut.
2: <laughs> so there's just like a lot of bad happening all around her. And uh, chief among them, Jared Leto's Joker. And then there's Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn, absolutely untouchable in her greatness as this character. How she completely embodies this sort of daffy psychosis of Harley Quinn, who could do such dark things with such a cheery chipper attitude. Um, so she crushes it in that. Again, a movie barely anyone liked. It, it made it made money. Let's let's not let's not lie. It made money. Barely anyone liked. Somehow tucked her way into a Harley Quinn spin-off movie. Like a spin-off of a movie that no one liked. And then that movie got. You know, James Gunn, let's bring James Gunn back in the conversation, gets another turn. So we have three examples of Margot Robbie's Harley Quinn in movies that work to varying degrees of success. People are very split on birds of prey. That is true. I don't know what happened with Suicide Squad. I think it's called COVID. But like, you know, I that that movie, which was way better than the first Suicide Squad, is still not one that people hold up as like a great comic book movie. But if you talk about great comic book performances even though it was in the animated series Batman it's great superhero let's say super enhanced person's performance uh it's it's freaking Margot Robbie is Harley Quinn she's so so good and those movies are so mixed bag but even if I heard if I heard tomorrow that Zaslav's like guess what we're bringing Margot Robbie back for another Harley Quinn adventure I'm like tell me when tell me where I'm coming I think she's fantastic and then like you know, shout out Kelly Cuoco, who like, yes, and Margot Robbie as as Harley Quinn, because that was so, when Suicide Squad came out. I was at Comic-Con that year and Harley Quinn, the movie wasn't out yet. And Harley Quinn was by far the most popular costume based on the trailer. It was like Harley Quinn mania was real and it was amazing. And so uh, then we get the Harley Quinn animated series uh, that's currently airing on uh, Max and um. You know that is wonderful too, and the the wider world knows more about Harley Quinn because of Margot Robbie's incredible performance.
0: That is pretty great. Uh, are you worried about uh, Folly Adieu coming in and throwing another live action Harley Quinn in our faces?
2: Oh, Lady Gaga, um, I'm on I'm on record as saying I I'm excited for Folly Adieu. so I can't I can't take that wild weird statement back. Um, Harley Quinn, one of the few uh, characters who
1: could compete against herself in this category at some point. (laughs)
0: That that is true.
1: (laughs) Animated to live action to animated back to live action.
0: This is making me realize because I have Fortnite skins of these people except for Shaggy. I need a Shaggy from Scooby Doo, they Fortnite don't have mystery in my Mystery
1: Inc. in Fortnite. Uh, uh, at
0: least, not that I've been able to get. Ro-ro. Maybe it's while I've been gone. <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> I for on the Scooby Doo front, I just want to shout out that, um, like, I I think I was too old to be the right demographic when Scooby Doo came out, so I was never into it at all. But what I have been really into is similar to like sort of the Shrek phenomenon, like watching the kids who love that movie grow up into being you know, a driving buying force in the economy, stuff like that. And so then like the nostalgia uh, for those properties is deeply real. And Matthew Lillard, I have seen so many TikToks of Matthew Lillard on the convention circuit for both Scooby-Doo and Scream. And he is one of the, like, it's like the four hobbits and Matthew Lillard are the best (laughs) I've ever seen at like being so charming at a convention and he's like so good with all the kids who love him as shaggy who come up to him like it's really beautiful to see so uh, you know i just want to yes and matthew lillard who has taken that role you know like slc punk matthew lillard <laughs> scream <taken> giant... <laughs> slc punk shaggy, shaggy and <laughs> has yeah. taken that role kind of seriously and i mean like you know obviously all these people make a lot of money on the convention circuit but like he, he The way he engages with the fandom is just really, really sweet.
1: Yeah, I mean, honestly, I feel this way about Margot Robbie as well, but you can feel the love that the actor has for the character. I don't, just looping back to Ahsoka, I don't know if I feel that yet from Rosario Dawson, but I'm told that it's there for her. Like, she has a deep love for this character, and um, I love it when you can feel that in the performance. Uh, and you can definitely feel that from, from Matthew Lillard as Shaggy. He loves Scoob even though Scoob is not there because he is a bad (laughs) CGI model.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So we have three picks from each of your hosts, which leaves a fourth spot open. We have each picked one of the emails that you sent us to trialbycontent at gmail.com. And we're going to let those three choices rumble and figure out come out with just one to take our fourth spot. Let's go in the order that we have listed here and kick it off with Joanna.
2: Speaking of Rosario Dawson, and one of my favorite movies of all time ever. I'm going to choose our listener Matthew who has cheated a little bit and then I will I will make I'll make the final pick. And and gone with all three of the leading ladies in Josie and the Pussycats. Um, <laughs> so Matthew says, if we're arguing best live action depiction of an animated character, it has to be the wonderful trio of Rachel Lee Cook, Tara Reid, and Rosario Dawson in Josie and the Pussycats. I'll be out of them lots. Not only is this a smuggle of Rosario Dawson on the week uh, celebrating her brilliant depiction of Ahsoka, this movie didn't just do the thing, but with real people. Like Barbie, the movie tried to make a point with a great message about product placement, best gag since Wayne's World, the state of manufactured brands, and the dangers of social media. It was a movie with a message ahead of its time, was still good when it came out. The acting can be, wouldn't it time? Oh, I disagree. Um, And this is not the best movie. Well, maybe Rachel lee Cook. Okay, the acting can be, wouldn't it times, but this is not the best movie for many of these three actresses. <laughs> I, I, I dare you to name a better Tara Reed performance. Uh, Shark data. It's, it's,
0: it's,
2: it's a good depiction of the comics and animated series. Um, if I had to pick one, actually, I think I might pick Tara Reed. Like Tara Reed is an absolute delight in this movie. She's so fun. I love Justine the Pussycats. This is a, you know, I, you know, it it cycles around that I get a chance to pump up uh, Josie and the Pussycats, one of the greatest fictional bands of all time. The soundtrack actually is full of original bangers. M- tremendous parody of the music industry and um, boy bands and manufactured girl bands and all of that um, great stuff. I think people, when people finally watch Josie and the Pussycats, they go, oh, th- this is what this movie is? I think it's impossible. It's either impossible to accurately promo this movie for what it actually is or at least the studio did a terrible job because it is sharp and funny and fun and um i love this movie and with with love to rosario and with a little less love to rachel lee cook i gotta give it to Tara Reed is genuinely so funny. I genuinely
1: did, did not think, unless we were going to do a best side characters from The Big Lebowski, that Tara Re- Reed would <laughs> ever get into a, a trial by content <laughs> debate. <laughs> or like some sort of American Pie debate that we would have. Yeah, no whatever idea.
0: happened to that person from American Pie, <laughs> the trial by content episode. Uh, I think my emailer also was suggesting a whole cast of people but I will also narrow it down at the end of the email. Uh, Owen writes in, Speed and the rest of the Racer family being portrayed by Emile Hirsch. John Goodman, Susan Sarandon, and Christina Ricci not only cement themselves as a family that genuinely love each other, but also behind the scenes, a family bond that could get John Goodman through alcoholism. Through every beat of the film, the racer family encapsulates the nervousness associated with watching your son slash boyfriend drive a Mach 5, quote, like he's never coming back, unquote, and still supporting him (laughs) after going against their wishes and entering a rally race that literally killed his brother, Rex Racer but spoiler, not really. Now, although the original anime is full of broken English and wild expressions, I believe the performances of the main casts, even the chimpanzee, can elevate the material and add just as much heart to their performance as the Wachowskis put into the movie itself. P.S. Speed Racer is a 10 out of 10. Capital F. Film, I absolutely agree. It is visually fantastic. I used to watch the Speed Racer cartoons um, with with my friends on like like VHSs that we would get of them. Um, growing up, I, just because I love the idea of how extreme the racing was, I think a lot of people had. Uh, this experience with the show Wacky Races, which I didn't realize was a real show for the longest time, but that was what Speed Racer was to me uh, as like like a Godzilla loving, uh, you know, not afraid of reading subtitles uh, young child. Uh, but out of all of these, I'm going to, if I have to single one out, uh, single out Emil Hirsch for taking, yes, a sort of uh, generic hero. That really loves racing and actually putting some meat on those bones, uh, literally and in terms of character. So Emil Hirsch as Speed Racer from Speed. Uh, Emil Hirsch as Speed Racer from Speed Racer. All right. Well, I mean, you guys
1: both picked uh, emails where folks were trying to squeeze entire casts into this prompt, <laughs> and I have chosen uh, this submission from our listener Jessica about a singular performance from a very singular type of performer. Uh, Here we go. Jessica says, my pick for the best animated live action character is the, 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 the Grinch played by Jim Carrey. I definitely don't consider myself a Christmas movie fan. And even when December rolls around this film, uh, And even when December rolls around, this film and the Always Sunny Christmas special are really all that make my yearly roster. How the Grinch Stole Christmas is a perfect blend of heartfelt and and funny that criticizes the obsession with the material and explores what is really important through the relationship of a young girl capable of finding good in everyone and a grumpy green monster who eats glass and picks through the trash. Carrie's Grinch... Brings a level of fun to the character that even when he is mean, disgusting, or crude, you can still root for him. There are multiple iconic and quotable scenes that are now inextricable from the character of the Grinch. Personally, I love when he's fighting with his own Echo and it calls him an idiot. The impressive prosthetics and makeup are also notable. The look, characterization, and movie itself make Jim Carrey's Grinch a contender for best animated character turned live action. Uh, to just to yes and Jessica's email. Jim Carrey, among all these characters, went through probably the most like physical transformation, right? With all those makeup effects as the Grinch. So, uh, you know, degree of difficulty, very high on that. And, uh, you know, one of the more iconic Jim Carrey performances in a movie that I personally don't love. But I do think is he plays a good Grinch. I will take Jim Carrey's Grinch over Mike Myers' Cat in the Hat any day oh yeah
2: <laughs> what a tremendously low bar you just said for <laughs> jim carrey to barely trip over um, uh. <laughs> i don't want to i don't want to yuck jessica's yum i think it's great that she loves this movie i think again maybe my age is a factor here but because i grew up on the animated which i think is perfect i've never i've never warmed to this movie or any other grinch and, it, and i actually kind of you know when they say like oh don't worry the remake you know don't worry about Lady Ghostbusters. It's not like your your favorite Ghostbusters movie doesn't exist anymore. It kind of feels like the animated Grinch doesn't exist anymore to like people who grew up with Jim Carrey Grinch. That's not Jim Carrey's fault or Ron Howard's fault or any anything like that. But um,
1: In fact, it may be a byproduct of it being a, a good performance, worthy of being maybe. in our poll.
2: I mean, here's here's the deal with Jim Carrey. Uh, Dave was saying before we started recording that he wished like the mask was an animated film or television show like because Jim Carrey as a living breathing cartoon is something I think definitely worth acknowledging and I'm I will like hold my nose and do it with the Grinch but um, it's only because of I think Jim Carrey's larger
1: sure he, he wins rub- like a
2: rubbery body of work a you know? special
1: jury prize category crown for most animated actual human
0: yeah Dave, what, <laughs> was, Dave, what do you think <laughs> you know if you go to Universal Studios uh, and either of the theme parks, and you meet the Grinch, Uh, those Grinches are Jim Carrey Grinches. They are not based on the animated series. It has been re-established as that version of the character. I echo Joanna's thing specifically in that the reason they cast Jim Carrey as the Grinch uh, is because he's able to do so much with his body and face. Uh, He can't quite do the smile that loops back on itself and brings a thousand wrinkles on a face that had none a second ago, uh, which is, I think, stuff that makes the animated Grinch so special in its particular uh, medium. But once you see Benedict Cumberbatch do just a reading of the Grinch over some, like, uh, blobby CGI, you really have to give it to Jim Carrey for his entire period where he was just kind of putting his body on the line. If we're going to say Shelley Duvall is doing something with olive oil, you have to say Jim Carrey's doing something with the Grinch. Whether or not it works for you, I think it is uh, completely different. But I'd be willing to throw this on here, uh, just because I think Boba Fett can beat the Grinch. <laughs>
2: I think you're really underestimating how salty people are about Boba Fett, the book of Boba Fett, and like I know, I know your intentions are Empire Strikes Back only, but. You know, I mean, especially also when like he so famously flames out in Return of the Jedi. Like, I know that you're like
0: <laughs> Empire
2: Strikes Back only, but <laughs> I have more facts
0: about that if we want to include Return of the Jedi, but I was going to abbreviate it since we talked a lot about Star Wars. Um, OK, fine. Who of these of the, who of Tara Reed of the Pussycats, uh, Emil Hirsch, Speed Racer or Jim Carrey's The Grinch, do we think uh, deserves to be amongst our three?
2: I think if you have committed assault and everyone knows you have, then you should be disqualified for the polls. So that leaves out the both lead actors from Speed Racer. <laughs> womp womp.
1: <laughs> Um Yeah, I mean, I think if our goal here is to make the most competitive poll, this is self-serving, of course, because yeah. it's my listener pick. I think it's got to be Jim Carrey. It's,
2: it's Jim Carrey. He sure. may
1: run away with it. Carlos votes Grinch. That's it.
0: Debate over.
2: If I, if I could squeeze all three Pussycats into the poll, I might argue for it, but I, I think that's cheating. So I, yeah, I think it has to be Carrie for sure.
0: <laughs> all right. So our final poll is going to be Jim Carrey as the Grinch, Matthew Lillard as Shaggy from Scooby-Doo, Margot Robbie as Harlequin, Quinn, and Jerry Bullock as Boba Fett, preferably just from of Strikes Back. But you know what? As long as it's Jeremy Bullock <laughs> under there. Whatever. Uh, you can find our poll for the best animated character turned live action on the ringer.com, at ringer on Twitter. Yes, that's the name of the website. And in the Spotify app where you find trial by content. You choose the winner. We'll announce it next week. A reminder, because this has been really good for our numbers, or we've just been doing good podcasts. You could vote in all three of those places. You could vote on the ringer.com. You could vote at the ringer profile. And you could vote in the Spotify app if you scroll down past the description of this episode. You could hear about all the movies we mentioned, uh, including, I guess, American Pie, because of an aside. Sorry, Carlos. At letterbox.com <laughs> slash trial by content. Uh, Neil, remind them what we're talking about next week. Well, next
1: week, Dave, we are talking strike movies uh, in honor of the multiple... Hollywood strikes currently going on and just, you know, hot labor summer in general. We're looking for the best movie about the labor movement. Make your case for your chosen film or send us any other thoughts you have uh, in an email to trialbycontent at gmail.com.
0: This episode was produced by He's Large Carlos (laughs) Cherubo.